0: Take two! It's Kandashow's Beatles Revolution. One tooth. On the iHeartRadio.
1: Kandashow's Beatles Revolution number 51. And people said it would never last. Well nobody ever said it wouldn't last. They just nobody ever thought i'd do it but i'm doing it because podcasts are cool and the thing i love the most about doing it is not just talking about it but talking with the musicians who were involved in it or who saw it and what the reactions are how it changed them musically socially emotionally and a man who's become a dear friend for many years now Man who stands stage left of Paul McCartney for, my God, 17 years now. Brian Ray from Paul's Band is here. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Uh, Hey, Ken. How are you, man? Good to see you again. Paul joins John Lennon and the Quarrymen in 58. They become the Beatles in 1960. They end in 1970. That's 10 years.
0: In February, it'll be
1: 17. 17. Years. Yeah. Do you ever think about that sometime? That this is the lo- I mean, he's had some Hamish Stewart and, and Robbie McIntosh. You know, there's some real players he's had through the years. This is the band he has loved for the largest point of his life that gives him the most joy as far as what I can do, the most flexibility, the sound he hears in his head. Mm. This guy is a perfectionist when it comes to music. We we know this, and that's what you guys are to him.
0: Yeah, somehow he keeps calling us back. There's no accounting for taste. <laughs> but, you know, here we are, and we're all so fortunate. You know, it's um, a privilege beyond measure. You can't even imagine. So uh, in, in our field, um, it is as good as it gets to be a musician who's, uh, well— a sideman really to right. be hired and be a part of Paul McCartney's band for this long. It's, it's a real treasure
1: and a pleasure. I mean, there are gigs and there are gigs and the stories you've told me through the years are just irreplaceable. I've quoted them and re them a hundred times on the air and to friends, you know, it's this weird gig. You're not doing a hundred gigs a year, but you've met the queen of England a couple of times. You've played the Olympics. You've played to the biggest stadiums in the world and this past week in New York City for the release of the new McCartney album, Egypt Station, you played a little place called Grand Central Station. Mm, yeah. Tell tell me, well, I want to talk about the Liverpool gig, but tell me about New York City, about Grand Central.
0: Well, you're right. After playing on the, the largest stages in the world, like televised for the, the Olympics or a Super Bowl or stadiums with 60,000 people, you know, then what do you do? How do you sort of reinvent the live performance event and um and there's a great team around Paul and we've got a fantastic new album that Paul uh and the band did called Egypt Station as you just said and they just thought what can we do to surprise people uh unannounced secret shows in Grand Central Station it's right there in the title right. uh came to mind and it was just a, a a crazy idea that they actually followed up on Found this beautiful ballroom called the Vanderbilt Room, I yes. believe. Yes. Um, gorgeous.
1: I'd never seen it before. Oh, It's yeah. been sitting off to the side of the Vanderbilt apartment. Uh-huh. That was the the guy who built it had his own apartment to have his own. What's what's the most polite way of saying the assignations should he need a private apartment in his workplace environment? Okay, that's as much as we need to know. <laughs> uh,
0: assignations, huh? That's a cl- that's a classy way of saying it. <laughs> that's nice. And yeah, this big, lovely ballroom with these giant chandeliers and a clock at one end and big grand doorways. And it was just beautiful looking, a big marble room. Um, Marvellous. And uh, and it was delightful. It was it, it, It's always different for us when we're thrown into a situation that's so very different from our usual right. thing, which would be an arena or a stadium, which uh, is a lot in itself. But to go into a completely different venue like that and gear up for it's always exciting to get you on your toes because you don't know what's coming next sonically or uh, right or you know just arrangements wise you know
1: because that's what I wanted to ask as a musician pros pro you you guys are like the best of the best at what you do of playing Beatles and Paul music and just being able to groove together it's such a together band really let let me be a musical music fan nerd for a moment because you're the only person I feel comfortable enough asking what's the difference between preparing for Sao Paulo Brazil to 500,000 people to 300 people in Grand Central Station do you make any conscious changes is it a mindset do you is do you are you playing differently do things change
0: so many things are different so as i was just saying with a stadium and arena you know anywhere from 15,000 to 60,000 people in those two sizes of venues there that's what we're most used to now, when we're thrown into a small stage in a secret show and the PA isn't nearly as strong and the environment is very echoey because it's marble, <laughs> then you have to play differently. And we had to rehearse for days at a different volume level and a different dynamic sensitivity. We had to sort of re-experience all these songs that we've already played and a few new ones that we haven't played a lot and sort of reinvent it and... uh in, and it's a challenge, and as I said, it gets you to sit up in your shoes. You know, you just do you really play lighter.
1: Up. Do you play?
0: You do. You play lighter. You play more sensitively. You play the room basically. Yeah. When you have a big echo in a room like that, like at Grand Central Station, your impulse is to play louder to hear yourself more because mm-hmm. it's all just traveling around right. the room in this sort of reverb. But the truth is, is you have to play quieter. right so it it doesn't get lost counterintuitive but that's what you got to do
1: otherwise it's lost into the and
0: we all do and you know getting Abe to play quieter (laughs) you know it's like it's uh and we we did it and you know it's um it's fun it's it's fun to have new
1: challenges talk about new challenges it's something that brian and i talked about last time and i'm also i want to Cherry pick some highlights of stories, if you don't mind. It's almost like best of Brian Ray, Ken Dashow's best of Brian Ray segments. When you talked about having to learn how to be in Paul McCartney's band, as I said, if you're, if you're the rhythm guitarist in Billy Joel's band, that's what you do. And you know the set list, and there's about four changes a, a, a night, two or three changes a night. If you're the lead guitarist in Elton John's band, if you were Davey Johnston, you're playing this. This is what you're playing. In any other band, if you're in Bon Jovi and you're, you're playing you know, the rhythm guitar, that's what you do. But if you're in Paul McCartney's band, outside of Abe on the drums and Wicks on the keyboards, everything's up for grabs. Every stringed instrument could be yours one night or not. I have seen you play bass for half the show. Mm-hmm. I have seen you play Paul, who plays bass. I've seen you be his play his bass lines for half the show. I've seen you play lead. I've seen you play rhythm. I've seen you strip down. I've seen you rock out mm-hmm. and everything in between. So you've got to learn all these different... You have to learn every part of every song, not just your part of the song. It's like you have to know the entire play, and there's a couple of hundred songs to choose from in Beatledom and a few hundred, Paul solo and with wings, and then on the clear blue he says hey how about From me to you mm. which until this year i don't think he's played since back in the days in 64
0: i think that's one that he's never performed live uh Ever? since well since the beatles since, yeah.
1: right sorry how how does that happen how does how does the song he hasn't played live since 64 suddenly wind up on your plate <laughs> it's interesting
0: i mean we missed that one no, none of the band members who often keep a list of things we'd love to put in the show that may not have been played since the Beatles, we have a list of those things. That song has never been on any of our lists. keep, like, a secret list? Us.
1: Here's Brian's list of songs I would love to play with you, and I pick my spots on when to mention it.
0: We often, as a band, the four of us, when we're out to dinner, uh, you know, let's say on the road when Paul is somewhere else, we'll often talk about, like, what if we did this? What if we did Backseat of My Car? What if we did the, You know, and we'll often sort of talk about that. That's just not one, for some reason, it ever came up, and we're really glad Paul came up with that. He pulled that out of yeah. his butt?
1: Yeah. What made it... Do you know... Did he say, hey, I was just thinking about this, or I heard it on the radio? It, it just... Of all the things to... I mean, I you love the what? song, but... Yeah, he may have heard
0: it on the radio yeah. and been reminded hey, of it. Hey, that's It's good not one. like he goes... Back and listens to Beatles albums all the time. He is exposed to it because guess what? They're on the radio all the time. (laughs) All of it, you know. But yeah, um, it was a great choice for him. And uh, it was a pleasure to bring that one out. And then it's just deciding who's playing what. You know, does he want to play acoustic guitar? Does he want to play bass as he did on the Beatles version live? And we just decide. I, I usually will go to him and say, "What are you thinking of playing?" <laughs> <laughs> that's, Rather that's, than "What do you want me to play?" Right. I'll say, uh, "What do you What are you feeling like?" You know.
1: That's so. That's how it starts. Yeah, will say, "I think I'll I think I'll stick with the bass on this one." And or, sometimes he'll change his mind too. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just have to switch. It's the uh, Brian. I think that is the hardest test I've ever heard any musician or group of musicians have to come up with. That you and Rusty have this. Have this guy, who's the leader of the band, who's written the entire songbook of the second half of the twentieth century. You have to know all of it. You have to nail it. And you won't really know until we get there what exactly which part we're doing. Am I am I doing Hamlet? Am I doing Ophelia? Am I doing the King? Am I doing Polonius? Yeah. You know, you don't know till you get yeah, to the that, theater which true. role I'm it's doing. It's
0: so true. Well, it's a you know it's an embarrassment of riches with Paul because he's so talented on so many intru- instruments. He's great with piano. He's great with uh, synthesizers. He's great with lead guitar. He's great with acoustic guitar. You know, obviously, he's probably the most important bass player of popular music. Without a doubt. And then he's also the most amazing singer. So (laughs) it's a lot of things. and, And my role, as you know, is to cover the things he's not
1: doing when we play live a lot of work on your plate that's a lot and, you know i said to wicks one night you know you're playing every single part that's that george martin put together from the calliopes and the samples and everything else is that like everything that can't be covered is that you don't want to have 13 people on the stage wicks you you pick it up and he said to me he goes i feel like i'm the dustman of the band whatever's left over wicks yeah. you do all that stuff Just yeah, pick yeah, it up. yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, if you've ever watched Wix, it's pretty fascinating because we don't run tracks per se during the show. We don't have any clicks. We don't run. There's no hard drives
1: going to pre-recorded no,
0: music. None of that whatsoever. No vocal accoutrements. No nothing. Um, but he does hit samples with his feet and <laughs> hands. So he'll have like a shaker on his left foot, assigned to a pedal, and it'll go when he hits it. And if he keeps hitting, it goes chicka, chick, chicka,
1: chicka, chicka. And that's chicka, how you get the shaker sound. Yeah. Because there's, there's, nobody hand has claps. a hand free.
0: Nobody has a hand free or hand clap to do it. Literally, he's playing like a Wurlitzer or a Rhodes or an organ or a piano part here while he's playing shaker or a cowbell with his feet. It's pretty remarkable.
1: It's I can barely play the drums and play a, a counter rhythm with one foot and my hi hat, let alone watch what this guy is doing. All of you, it's just absolutely mind boggling to doing that. And the first time when Paul broke out and played Purple Haze, played mm-hmm. the lead in... What, what song is it in the middle of it where he, he ends Purple with... Purple
0: Haze came out of uh, Let Me Roll It, right. I think. Yeah. Let Me
1: Roll It. He played Purple Haze. I think it was at uh, Shea Stadium, last play at Shea. Uh-huh. And he finished... And the guy behind me, as it finishes, just yells out, son of a bitch! And and I thought, that's the perfect, that was the button on it. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, seriously? Yeah. That too?
0: Seriously? That too? Yeah, to see him jam out on lead guitar, it's really fun. <laughs> it's a pleasure. He's really enjoying shredding, you know, <laughs> right? As, as a guitar player. That's something that's developed over these 17 years. Mm-hmm. He's always been, an, obviously, an incredible guitar player. He. You know, and drummer, a lot of people and, know yeah. that he played a lot of the guitar on the Beatles records, but uh, you know, to hear him do it live and just in, in, you know, interpret these songs and invent new licks, it's really fun. And
1: and play drums on some Beatles songs. Being honest, we know that that's true. Things we wanted to do it. There's a, uh, my buddy uh, Tom, uh, Frangione, who hosts the fest for Beatles fans with me every year, and sent me today, and we we were just talking about how in the last series of concerts when you did, uh, in spite of all the danger. The first song that he wrote, which when you strip it down, just which the way you did it is amazing with that harmony. Whoa, 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 whoa and the whole crowd singing along. Make a list of all the great songwriters in 1958. Now, overlay that with the same songwriter from 1958 who are writing great songs in 1998. Yeah. There's one name on that list. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Paul McCartney. It's so There's true. nobody else
0: on the list. I, I've read a couple of reviews of Egypt's, Egypt Station, and the, the first paragraphs always have something like that written in them, because it's just there for you. It's like we were talking about just before we went on air here, you know, what artist 50, 60 years later, is still writing and recording relevant material and then touring it. I mean, when you think of Frank Sinatra in the 70s, who people would go to see in Las Vegas just for a a beer and kind of a nostalgic laugh, really, Um, that's only 30 years after his heyday. And here we are 50 and 60 years later, and here he is. Playing stadiums, it's it's pretty
1: incredible. Yeah. So, when uh, little Stephen was up here uh, a while back, and we were talking about Elvis, it was the it was the anniversary of El- Elvis's death, and I said, you know, listen, this is the guy. This the reason John Lennon wants to pick up a guitar, and so many musicians of his era, just as the Beatles inspired every American kid to pick up a guitar from Ed Sullivan, Elvis, and Little Richard, and Chuck Berry, the founding fathers that you know br- brought this out, but you know, here is. You know that awkward moment of Elvis meeting the Beatles, and they said it was really awkward, and the Beatles didn't really talk much and He said, "If you guys aren't going to say anything, I'm gonna watch t v so they talked a little, but I kept thinking it was almost like the guy who invented the propeller and invented flight meeting the guys who invented the jet engine hmm hey, hey, Elvis, thanks for rock and roll. We'll be going this way now, you know and it's just when you get to revolver, when you get to tomorrow never knows." What's left for Elvis to do? Mm. You know, Elvis should have just kept on being Elvis, and you know what? If you just do it, and rockabilly did wind up coming back in the '70s and '80s, mm-hmm. but you know, if, when you've got a crazy, you know, manager like Tom Parker, who's mm-hmm. not honest and won't let you tour the world, mm-hmm. where he could have opened up the eyes, and he's just making these crappy movies. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, you know, the when Sergeant Pepper was released in '67. And Elvis releases Harem Scarum, mm. and you, you know you couldn't have. To me, that was more more than embarrassing than Sinatra wearing a leisure suit with puka beads, singing up and away, which is an embarrassment because I love Sinatra. He's brilliant at being Sinatra, mm. but like, don't make him keep doing this <laughs> stupid. Yeah, uh, you know, it's dress him like an Indian in, in dark makeup. Yeah. You know, for this guy is he here, just let him be Harem Elvis. Scarum. You know, that's
0: true. Well, there's so many things you could say about Elvis and what could have been. And what should have been, but at the heart of it, man, we have a lot to be grateful for with him. And oh, totally, uh, he was such a sweet country dude. You know, he's this little it, humble guy who also was very aware of the fact that he was a star. He he knew it when he oh, was yeah. in junior high and high school. There's pictures of him at his little house getting ready for school, already looking like Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. and no one looked like that. <laughs> no, you know, and he was dr- he was going to. Uh, haberdashers for the the upscale, you know, African Americans in the community, and wearing right. their styles and adopting their style of clothing and being, and he was just a meteor. And yeah, some mistakes were made, management and other, and then feeling like he had to go serve, and he derailed his own uh, trajectory in a way. Yeah, oh, very sad much. thing. You know, as,
1: as Stevie pointed out, that you know he's singing all these great Liber and Stoller songs. And Park, his Colonel Parker, talking about bad management, decides he's sounding too black. Let me get more Andy Williams on him. Like, no, just the opposite. Yeah, he should be the white Otis Redding. You know, that's where his strength is, not you know, just making these silly moves. I'm going to win this race, and just and don't make him do that. <laughs> yes. Make him, let him sing from his heart. You yeah. know, that's where that's where his power is, and you know, you get pushed back. What's the old saying? They said in the beginning. Uh, Bing Crosby was threatened by Sinatra. Sinatra was threatened by Elvis. Elvis was threatened by the Beatles, and in 50 years plus, nobody's threatened the Beatles. Yeah. Lady Gaga is huge and incredible, and you know there's always the pop stars of the day who make a fortune and are popular. Hmm. And I don't. This will come out snarky, but it's not my intent. 50 years from now. There won't be a DJ doing a radio program called "Breakfast with Bieber." It just can't happen. It's beyond my like, comprehension, and people love it, but it's just yeah, but it can't happen. And every time I get interviewed. Brian, about, what, what why is it, do you think? You know, and that's, there's always the why is it? Yeah. And, you know, the books that come out, 1,600 pages on Tuesday, they ate a sandwich and then they recorded the backing tracks of She Loves, you know, all that stuff. But there's no book that explains why. Mm. And you can't, because my only answer that I ever give is, say the word, love. All mm. you need is love, 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 mm. love. Let it be, love. It's all about respect and love. Mm. And there's sex songs and there's happy songs and sad songs. Mm. But they just kept transforming every year, every 18 months. This band would shed its skin and become something else. Mm. And what I see today in pop, and you tell me what you think, is that when somebody finds something that makes money, you just do it until somebody doesn't want to hear it and you get dropped and that's it. Mm -hmm. Nobody says, hey, I'm not going to tour anymore. I want to write with an orchestra. I want to try something with a baroque. Piano to it. You just, you do your thing because you've got a team and you're making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. The group that made the most money touring ever said, we're going to stop touring now. Mm. You know, who it's, takes that chance? It's interesting. I mean, it,
0: to me, first you've got to be bloody good. Yeah. And they, first of all, talk, uh, Paul's talked about just wanting to be the best band in liverpool to get the heck out to <laughs> to travel the world not because they hated liverpool of course just he loves get liverpool somewhere. but just to go somewhere you know they they were driven and uh and they accomplished that first of all you know and they did that with very hard work you know playing as you know like 300 shows a year and stuff an uh, un- unbelievable amount of work that went into it talk about 10,000 hours you know oh yeah but um Then besides being really, really good and developing their songwriting skills to be sort of otherworldly, they then were met with the perfect storm in in the sociocultural time of the 60s. And they just walked straight through this door that just (laughs) cracked open a little bit. And they said, we'll be having that and walked right (laughs) through it and bloomed and right in front of our eyes. And became a very important element in the Cultural Revolution of the 60s. So it was more than just a great band. It was when they arrived, how they arrived,
1: right after JFK. You know,
0: it it was so much—it So, was a perfect storm, you know?
1: Yeah. George Harrison said once, look, if we hadn't done it, somebody would have come along and, and done it. And with all due respect, George, nope. The Rolling Stones are the greatest rock band in the world. They are. I love the Stones. <clears throat> I love seeing them play live. They're amazing. But there's there's a reason, as great as the Stones are, and Queen is incredible, and all the bands we play on Q1043, but there's a reason the Beatles are on a shelf above, because like you said, they led the way. I can point to every group that said, followed them, like you said, a machete through culture. Here's how you dress. And, you know, what? my whole thing is kids... Dressed like Elvis, you know, or James Dean, you had a pompadour and tight chinos or a black leather jacket. And you, every teenager follows the culture and style of their heroes. But when you get to the Beatles, you've you've got thirty and forty year olds growing their hair longer. You know, when you look at Mad Men, they're wearing love beads. 40, 50 year old guys are wearing stripes and and polka dots. You, there was no fifty year old guy dressing like Elvis in nineteen fifty six, you'd be the mm-hmm. laughing stock of the world. In mm-hmm. nineteen sixty seven, if you were if you were working in, you know, in New York or London or whatever, you had to have some style too. You had to have wide lapels or a wide Paisley mm-hmm. tie. Mm-hmm. Or if if you still look like that British banker with the bowler hat, you were that you were the one they pointed yeah. at and laughed at. Yeah. Think about Hard Day's Night, you know, the guy, I pay my taxes and I want this window open. They pointed to that and went, You're done yeah from nowhere man done yeah it's interesting
0: isn't it yeah i remember being eight years old and my brand new stepfather courter, uh, courting my mom my stepfather to be courting my mom comes home from his gig
1: with Beetlewigs, and really? boy that went a long way to bonding us you know? <laughs> so happy Hey, I never asked you, what was your first experience seeing the Beatles? Was it Sullivan?
0: Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, sure was. But of course they had been on the radio for a few months. But right. It, my memory is that it happened so fast. You know, I heard like, please, please me. Then I want to hold your hand is the, uh, what I remember is the succession of singles. And, uh, as I said, it was three months after JFK had been assassinated and it's, Literally three months later, and here they come on at Sullivan. I was sat right in front of the television and I was aware of who they were. I'd seen some pictures, I was in love with their sound. It had already lit up America, and the timing was perfect. They came on TV and changed everything.
1: It's like suddenly we were able to smile again. It's like they changed to me. It's like America went from black and white to color, even though we watched it in black and white. Suddenly it was okay to like dance, it was okay to laugh uh, after this period of mourning that we've had. And
0: we bonded over it. You know, that that's yeah. the other element that, you know, can't be forgotten. We bonded over this band who gave us sort of permission to smile. Yeah, like you just said.
1: Like little Stephen always said, February 8th, 1964, there were probably 200 rock bands in America. February 10th, try to find a guitar in a store anywhere from Maine to, yeah, to South yeah, to Santa Fe. There wasn't an instrument. You couldn't find a tambourine. Every kid went, there you go. That's it. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> See ya. I mean, so many people say that. Billy Squire said once, look, of people of our era, 70s, 80s rockers, he goes, listen, there's only two, two types of people. People who tell you the Beatles were everything or the ones who were lying to you. That, there's a reason we picked up a guitar, and That's it was good. that. It just is. There's, there's no other answer. I love the Stones, too, but it was that. Just It just mm. is.
0: And they opened the door for a lot of other great bands, the, uh, the Stones, Kinks,
1: of course, as we all know. We all know the rest of it. Brian Ray from Paul McCartney's band, my special guest. Brian, after playing Grand Central and Liverpool and... Besides that, I love your band. I love the Bayonets. I love old school twanging songs. Mm-hmm, yeah. And it's twanging guitar. What's going on with you?
0: Well, it's fun. Uh, since the Bayonets, I've uh, gotten uh, a singles deal at Wicked Cool Records.
1: Hey, baby. We
0: know it's got Wicked Cool Records. And uh, yeah, it's a solo deal. So this is Brian Ray now talking. And uh, I have my second solo single with Wicked Cool is a song called One Heartbeat. It's a song I wrote 30 years ago uh, for Smokey Robinson, and he had a big hit with it. Now, I guess, three million airplays on his version. Wow. And uh, Wicked Cool was talking about my next single, and they were saying, we'd love to hear something sort of garage soul. And I thought about that for a while and thought, well, let me see if I could put together a new version of the song I wrote for Smokey. I did so, kind of a garagey, horn-fueled, fun, up-tempo version of my uh, soul song. And uh, after I got the basic track, Wicked Cool had heard my demo of it, loved it. I then called Smokey in just to see if maybe he'd like to come and add a few ad-libs or harmonies or whatever. And to my surprise, he said yes. So he came to the studio, and uh, there I am, (laughs) I'm faced with Smokey Robinson. And I'm lucky enough that he came and sang on it as well, and uh, it's released. It was the coolest song in the world.
1: On the Underground Garage, yeah.
0: Yeah, and now it's, uh, yeah, in maximum rotation over there on that other channel.
1: Okay, so how can we get it? How do we find it?
0: You can find it wherever digital music is sold. It's a digital-only single, and uh, there will be more. There will be a physical also in early next year of a of a vinyl 45 with another cool song on the other side that might also include Smokey Robinson. I'm not sure. We'll see.
1: What's the website? Well
0: my also my social media is at Brian Ray Guitar and my website
1: is BrianRay.com. Cool. And you can always go to Little Steven, you know, in the you know the Underground Garage and find it there. I love your playing. Just you know, it's one thing to try to, to play like the Beatles sound and to play the wing sound of, you know, of Jimmy McCullough or Henry or whoever it is. But you're playing just it's just got so much energy and so much soul and rock. I love the sound of the music. Brian Ray is my special guest here with me in the studio at Ken Dash. Thank you, Brian, for so much for coming in. It's a uh, pleasure. This past week, the release of Egypt Station, the new McCartney album, played Grand Central Station. But in a lot of ways, one of the things that the world bonded over that absolutely became once again a hurricane involving somebody from the Fabs was the James Corden appearance the liverpool show Mm. of what he did on that show i think at last count i checked before we recorded this i think i saw it was 154 million hits on youtube brian wow 154 million views of your boss going around liverpool with james corden and you guys doing that show in the pub isn't that something? Think about that
0: number. Well, it struck a chord, I think, largely just because it was so authentic. You know, it wasn't at all scripted. And uh, they surprised the uh, the person in charge of letting tourists into Paul's old home there on um, Fourthland Road and toured that house, as everyone now knows. Everyone's seen the video. But it was the authenticity and it was the spontaneity of that moment and – and James Corden telling this story, you know, and, and getting teared up. The entire world, the, whole cro- thing, the yeah. entire
1: world teared up. Uh, yeah. Simon Kirk, uh, my dear friend said, do you see it? I was crying my bloody eyes out. Was when he <laughs> starts, when James Corden cries and says, I'm sorry. I and I don't think that was a showbiz thing. It's like, I didn't see that coming. Oh, I just no. No, teared no, up real. with Let It Be. You listen to this. And Paul chokes back a tear yeah. and says, your grandfather's here. You know, and you just, that's the power. This song you play every night, the power yeah. of this. Is the is a musical cannon shot that shakes the world every single time he sits at the piano yeah. and, and plays this thing. <laughs> when he when he and James Corden went by the statues down by Merseyside, by the statues of the four of them, and there was a tour group there. So my dear, dear friend Jackie Spencer, I send everybody to do her tours in Liverpool because she custom tailors the tour. It's not just getting on a bus. She asks you. How much time do you have? Who's your favorite Beatle? Are you more interested in this person's history or that, the music or that? And she will tailor the tour like a custom-made suit. She tailors the tour to what you guys want to see. Do you have two hours? Do you have two days? Mm. And she makes it yours. She's the one with this tour group, and she's taking him to Merseyside and the docks and the thing. And Paul and James Corden show up on the tour mm. and they've just started it's in the morning and they've just started and they get the picture taken with paul and we finish and you know i'm about to take them you know to like to strawberry fields and i'm thinking well now what am i going to do for them <laughs> like, yeah what, yeah what and then on just like the tour is over they just met paul mccartney the next six hours no matter where i go we'll be talking about meeting paul mccartney yeah so the next day Tour group says somebody raised their hand like, um, w- "Will we be meeting Paul McCartney today?" Yeah, yeah, and, uh, uh, he comes yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. uh, he's see, off. He's he just yeah. He's scheduled at yeah. noon. <laughs> yeah, it was a,
0: a wonderful show. And um yeah, again, who knew how that was going to go? It wouldn't have been something that I would have drummed up. Like, why don't we do carpool karaoke? So that's why I'm not you know, in the PR department. You know what was, but uh, but it, it worked out really well. And it's been a great start to a release of a really fantastic new album. His new album, I think, is really, really important.
1: Uh, the more I play it, the more I'm getting into it. And so, certain, you know, people have said to me, well, I, you know, I know uh, come on to me. Like, what should somebody his age be doing? Like, no. Do you, what the hell? Like, it's a song. It's putting it, like his, he said, "What in your 60s, back in the 60s, you're a teenager, you see a girl, you're a young guy, you want to, how do I approach her, what do I say, can we have a private moment, mm-hmm. you smiled at me. It's such an intimate moment that mm-hmm. he finds over and over again, Me and sounding contemporary, not trying to sound like it's 67, Sergeant Peppers, it's sounding like today. And when he goes back and looks, you know, like he does this visual scrapbook and takes us through Liverpool, you know, he takes us, he goes to Penny Lane. He goes to his old house. And there was that one moment in the backyard when he said to Jay, yeah, I used to climb up the drain pipe when I forgot the key and climb in the window. And he, you see him smile. He gets that devilish Paul smile. And he put his hands on the drain pipe, like, to think about doing it. And he said, no, better not. And I'm like, please don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't climb. Please don't climb. Yeah. Boy. And then he does it again. Like, he's he's about to do it. Oh, and then he, yeah. you saw that. And yeah. it's like... Oh, don't, yeah, don't, don't. do please, it. Please, for the love of God, don't clap. Yeah. I know he, he probably could, but please don't try it. Could be dangerous. I, I think mean, the so. drain pipe's been up there for a really long time. Exactly. You never know how those screws are holding. <laughs> okay, so, Brian Ray, tell me about the pub in Liverpool on that show with you guys behind the curtain when suddenly the curtain opens and there's Paul in the band. So yeah, like well, it's people. just
0: as it looked, it was a surprise to those in the audience. Did they, they really, really did, truly, they really not know you guys were behind? There. They were brought in after we had gotten behind the curtain, and we had been standing there for a good 25 minutes or so as they set the scene up, brought the people in. What did they tell them? Came did in. they
1: say, hey, we're doing a thing for James Corden? We want you to sit here yeah, and be you know, a bartender? Yeah, you know, he's
0: going to be a bartender. It's going to be fun. We'll play some songs and do a little bit for the television show. And that so yeah, it was all That's of, all.
1: So the, the fake was that it's about James Corden, so they knew there's TV yeah. cameras— but it's just James Corden.
0: Right. And Brilliant. There, and there was, you know, a jukebox on the wall. And he, as we all saw, asks one of the customers, you know, it's a jukebox free today. Go and put anything on you want. She goes, oh, really? And she goes over there and taps the, the song. And as we all know, Hard Day's Night, opening chord sounds, and the curtains open up. And there we are, you know. And it was an, a genuine moment. And I think that's why it's resonated so much is that it's all authentic it's all genuine you know
1: you see that 65 year old woman running into the pub yeah like a 12 year old girl crying and screaming yeah. and then there's a 15 year old girl sitting there crying watching it mm-hmm. and that's the thing that you can't explain it's not the beetle boots it's not the haircut mm. you know if it was just that it was done by you know in a couple of years mm. if it was just the look but you saw women of every age just weeping mm. and men just like tearing up, just not not even like of doing a sad song. You know, yes, you'd cry if he did in my life, but you know, crying at hard days night mm. because of the history of what it means, what, mm. you know, you see it in the, you see it in the audience, right? I would imagine, especially when you're doing these small shows, you can't not see the faces of a small crowd.
0: It's very entertaining for us, obviously. I mean, as that, that pub gig, began there's like seven people in the audience and then uh, a a few in our crew are in the audience as well, just to fill it out a little bit. And then uh, as the song continues and as the set continues, more more and more people from the street are being let in and they're just, they've now heard Paul's in town doing carpool karaoke and they suspect something more might happen, but they don't know. now with social media, they start, you know, hiving around this, uh, this pub and start rushing in, and it became a real party, as you can see.
1: He, he just looked like he was having so much fun. I mean, that it's not that show business smile. It just seemed like he had this, this smile on his face. It's like this personal smile.
0: Yeah, it was fun for him also just because this is a place where he used to go hang out with John after gigs, and he said they played there at some point, but it was one of their favorite pubs to go to, and it's a real civilized pub. You yeah, know, it's like it's not a kid pub. Yeah, no, it's not a kid pub. It's like the adult's pub. There's like a library feeling to it. You know, it's kind of proper.
1: It's it was it's just amazing. And like I said, it's not just you and I. At 150 plus million people have seen this video and still going. I I love the new album. Yeah,
0: as we were getting ready for the curtains to open, we're back there and Paul is with his bass on, just kind of looking up at the crown moldings around the room around us. These 25 foot ceilings and these decorative sort of Uh, crown moldings of figurines up there. And it looked as if he was, you know, replaying a memory from a long time ago, like bringing in, I remember that crown molding. You know, you could just feel this feeling of Deja vu for him.
1: When you've played Liverpool, when you've done O2 in Liverpool or even like this sort of thing, does he talk about Liverpool much when he's when he's back there? Oh, of course,
0: yeah. yeah. And we just did The Cavern as well. Which right. was oh, yeah, that's right. Another fun gig that was announced Same. the morning of. And <laughs> right. uh, that was very fun, yeah. And that'll all come out. You'll see this. The DVD you'll, thing. You'll see yeah. something somewhere sometime,
1: I'm sure of it. You know, it's like we, when he told James Gordon, like, oh, that lake, they used to rent the boats. And John and I would go out and row on the boat and pretend we couldn't hear the guy with the megaphone saying "Number nine, come on in." You know, it's so vivid to him, like it's a memory for you or I from childhood. Yeah, you know, things that we'll never forget. We might forget the name of someone we just met, but we'll never forget, you know, those moments growing up, especially the history of it. You know, that the one song when he wrote "That Was Me," you know, and I, I always thought, yeah, I get it. I can't imagine seeing yourself on TV. And that would be exactly what would be going through your mind at this point if you're 76 and you're Paul going, yeah, that was me. Yeah. You know, sweating cobwebs in the cellar to on TV Mm -hmm. to think about what I've done and what this has done. It's not bragging. It's not, wow, look at me. It's just, I can't believe it. Mm. It seems unreal to watch yourself in the third person and Mm. go, that was me. And I... To me, it's really hard. That's his autobiography in so many yeah. ways. Look what all this became. And here we are
0: still. And
1: here he is. You know, it's amazing. Rocking out, going to play Quebec. Going to go up to uh, Canada, play yeah. a few cool places mm-hmm. and, and places you haven't played in a while.
0: Yeah, that's right. We'll be adding some more. We, we've just announced some dates in the States. I don't want to get out in front of it and reannounce them because things change. But yeah, there's uh, there's plans afoot, shall we say.
1: I mean, he he said to me once... When I, I, it was before an interview, and I said, do you mind talking about the Beatles again? I'll, really, I'll do something else if you don't. And he just smiled and said, I love talking about the Beatles. I was in the Beatles. But he said, there's only one stupid question. You don't need the money. Why do you do it? And I thought, that is the stupidest question I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Right? Of course he doesn't need the money. Why would you do something you love, that you're great at, that the entire world is climbing over each other to be part of? Why would you do that? Something you love that you can still do at the highest level ever? Mm. Why do you think you do that? Yeah. Well, just look at
0: one still photograph from any concert of his, and you should know the answer. <laughs> right, from <laughs> any angle. It brings
1: him joy. Right, the joy in his face. As yeah. Brian said to me, when somebody, one of you guys had asked, hey, what's his favorite place to play? Is it New York? Is it Liverpool? Is it London? And you had the perfect answer. I think it wasn't, you said his favorite place to play is where we're playing that night. That's mm-hmm. the most important true. show.
0: It could be Fresno or Sao Paulo or the White House. He's going to play them all the same way with everything he's got. It's great. He's not, he's not a cynical guy. I've said this before. Maybe, maybe you've heard me say this. When we've rehearsed and played Hey Jude, you know, literally a thousand times, maybe more by now, um, And not one time has he ever looked like he's not into it or rolled his eyes like, here's this one again. Right. Of course not. You know, it's still near and dear to him and he still plays it like he means it.
1: And that's no accident. That's the reason you stay at that top level. Whether you're an athlete playing at that pop because you've stretched, you've warmed up, you've rehearsed, you've gone over your playbook. You know what you're supposed to do. Mm. Or, you know, on any level, it's the work and the preparation that goes into it. Brian Ray, my special guest from Paul's Band, um, and we're recording this in September. And around this time of the year, it's very much like beatle history of, of things that happened around in September. And... It's one of the things I wanted to cover and talk to you about you about, st- about starts. And you mentioned 10,000 hours. For those who don't know what we're talking about, there's a, a book and a theory about you have to do something for 10,000 hours to be great at anything. And that sounds like a ridiculous amount of time. But then I look back, even on myself, I think, or Brian Plain, when people go, you, you've got a blog and Facebook and there's somebody here from sales in the studio. And they say, even my, our, our market manager said, How do you know what to say? I mean, you just hit the mic. How did you know what to say? Because it sounded perfect. And I thought, because it's the 10,000 hours thing. Because Mm. even though I'm talking to you, there's another part of my head going, I know exactly what has to happen next. I don't Mm. know that I know it, but I know it. Yeah, you you put in the
0: time. That's for darn sure. You're top of the game.
1: And these guys played seven nights a week, 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off. In, in Germany, in Hamburg, mm-hmm. with no rest, and that's and got, didn't get paid hardly anything, living in the back of a strip club, mm-hmm. you know, and sleeping on couches, or in the bathroom, or mm-hmm. on the floor, and build this. So this date, 1962, so they, they've played this hard, they're an amazing live band. The Beatles record How Do You Do It, which went on to Jerry and the Pacemakers, and Love Me Do, 15 takes of Love Me Do, and none of them were good enough. As simple a song as they maybe they have ever recorded. Simple, nothing to it, nope, didn't get it. They come back two weeks later, they've changed drummers, Pete's out, Ringo's here. All right, I'm going to get Andy White. Ringo, you could play a tambourine or something. We're going to try it again. And it's amazing when you think about that. That's 62 in September. September of 63, uh, the Daily Mirror publishes their first interview with them calls them, quote, four frenzied little Lord Fauntleroy's making 50,000 pounds a week (laughs) to put them down in 63. They also start a four-week run on top of the British charts with She Loves You. Capital here in the U.S., where we're from, thinks it stinks and don't even pick it up. Mm. So they give it to the Swan label who picks it up but doesn't really, nothing much happens. 63. I mean, there's not much happening with the Beatles in 63 but you've got a Brian Epstein who will not take no for an answer, mm. and you keep playing and pushing and playing and pushing and playing. Yeah. And Sid Bernstein calls, and in one year, you've changed the world. Mm-hmm. And it's about the work; nobody ever gives up. You just keep going. Remarkable, just keep going. remarkable, yeah. And what Brian, his history as a teenager, you on the road was it with uh, was it Edit James? That's right, yeah. So mm-hmm. and I, I, that it's the same. It's change the names, change the words. It's the same story. There's a reason Brian's on stage, Mm. is as a teenager, you put in so much work. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine all those gigs were a whole lot of fun or comfort. There Mm -hmm. probably wasn't a whole lot of comfortable places to sleep and a lot of great food to eat, but you're working.
0: Absolutely. I mean, for the first couple of years, I would drive around with Etta James in the back of her early 70s Seville, you know, with my guitar and amp in the back of the trunk and go pick up a band in san francisco and rehearse them the day of the gig just and find some guys to play the club owner would call guys we need a bass a yeah. bass and a drum and they'd have to be good enough because we, we didn't have time to switch them out i would rehearse them she would rehearse with me we'd go get a bite and play two shows and that's what we did we were like little renegades in a car running around the united states together
1: guys think about what brian's saying about how hard that work was you're the music director yeah Brian, and guitar Eddie player James. of
0: course and how old are you I was 19. Jesus. Not old enough to drink in the clubs I was playing in, yeah. But I did that for a long time with her. I was with Edda for 14 years. Really? I think, you know, your listeners can appreciate that that's the kind of thing that prepares you for a life where you might be the right guy for someone like Paul McCartney. And to never give up, you know, and um, to say yes to all the opportunities that come your way, and especially if they scare you. Um, do and if you think for some reason this opportunity that you're getting isn't right for you or it's beneath you or it's completely too frightening for you and you don't think you're good enough, you show up anyway, you know, and just try it.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and just do your best. And it it goes whether it's music or acting or a plumbing job. You know, you've been the apprentice and you're, you're working and the guy doesn't show up. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you to, you know, to make the form for the basin for the mm-hmm. shower. Well, mm-hmm. you've watched him. Every day on your knees for four weeks, you're up. You didn't know you were going to be up today. You didn't know you're the plumber today, Mm -hmm. but you are. And have you learned it? Mm -hmm. Can you do it? And is it going to leak? And I I believe it in my heart of hearts, like whatever it is you want to do, just learn it and care about it. I see there's a, I, I hate to generalize, but because we've got such amazing kids. I've had interns here who nothing will stop them. They just want to be in radio where they just want to Isn't be in great. Music exercises. so exciting. Business, they Good just for want them. to be a musician. Yeah. And you know, I see the ones that nothing will stop them. And then I see, you know, there's some people today that just live on social media and have fun, but they don't they don't dig in mm. to to life or to commit to doing anything. Mm. And I feel like, oh, you're, you're wasting time. Just whatever it it doesn't matter what it is. Mm. What's the thing you love? Just just go get it. Yeah. As hard as you can. Never stop. Apply getting. yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, Every radio station I sent my little mm-hmm. college tape to said no. So I made another tape, and I sent it again, and they said no. Mm-hmm. So I made a third tape, and, and they said no. Mm-hmm. And then one guy needed somebody on Sunday nights to run like the ball game and the church service at a country station in New Jersey and said, well, there's an hour of time you have to be on the air. I'll do it. It was $1.85 an hour. And my friends were getting 3 $4 an hour delivering pizza. But I would do it. I have to drive seventy miles each way. I'll lose five dollars on tolls and gas, but I'm in, and mm-hmm. I'm, i you know, I'm nineteen years old, and I'm even though I'm on the air. Nobody would really know it, just barely, but I'm in, mm-hmm. and nothing, you know, that's all I needed was a crack in the door, mm-hmm. you know. And like, how do you get to like, well, because you have no money for an entire mm-hmm. summer, and you borrow gas money from your folks, mm-hmm. and you go drive. 70 miles, to do an hour and a half on a six-hour show and run the church service because mm-hmm. you do it. Because mm. And the difference between a year and a half of doing that on a country station when I knew nothing about country and doing amateur work is night and day. And suddenly that next tape after doing that sounded like something, and you get the second job. Mm. It's a message I, I feel like Brian Paul McCartney would say the same thing here. Just put your heart and soul into it mm. and work at your craft. There you
0: go. Great,
1: great way to put it. Brian, I can't thank you enough for stopping by and being part of this. It's a pleasure, man. You know, you tour with Etta James in the back of her Seville, and the next thing you know, you're meeting the Queen of England. Hi. (laughs) Hi, I'm Brian. Well, there's
0: some few years in between. between. And and we'll go into that another time.
1: (laughs) All right. One last thing you have to tell the story is meeting the Queen of England, because it just popped in my head. Yeah. Brian Ray. Queen of England, Aussie Osbourne. Okay,
0: it's a, it's a, <laughs> a, it's an embarrassment of riches. I've I've got an Aussie story, but I've got an even better Elton story. Oh my okay, god! This is the second time I've I'm meeting the Queen. And yes, Brian's met her twice. Now yes. now we're in a lineup, and she's being brought along, along with her. Was
1: it her anniversary? Was it the? This was the
0: Diamond Earth- Jubilee. This 5- is the second time we play with her. Okay. And I happen to be in line with, you know, there's everybody there, Paul and the band, and there's Shirley Bassey, and there's Tom Jones, and there's all these performers that have just played. And and I happen to be standing by Elton John. And we're now waiting, and the Queen's getting closer and closer, and I'm getting a little nervous. I don't really know what to do. And <laughs> I say to Elton, I said, I'm I'm kind of nervous. what What do I do? He goes... Well, um, you know, just let her lead. And if she puts out her hand, then you put out yours. You don't put your hand out first and let her lead. Be polite. And she she comes my way and she does. She says something cute to Elton. I've seen you, you naughty boy or something like or that. She's seen him
1: imitate yeah. her.
0: Yeah. And then she comes to me and she does put out her hand. I shake her hand. I said, Lo, your highness, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. on Brian Ray. And she, she nods to me. And uh, then as she leaves, I'm like kind of, you know, breathing heavy. And I <laughs> say to Elton, wow, I, I didn't know. Uh, I put my hand out. He says, I, at least you didn't put your dick out. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then he says, I bet you didn't know you were going to meet the other queen
1: today. <laughs> nah, he's Nice, a, Elton. He's a funny guy. That's a great. I mean, he does it dead on, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Mr. I'm
0: not going to do it. I'll I'll leave it to him. Thank you, buddy. Always a joy to have you here. Thanks, Ken. Man, so good to see you again.